Our Father in heaven, nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to your cross we cling. Naked come to you for dress. Helpless look to you for grace. Stained by sin, to you we cry. Wash us, Savior, or we die. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are God who is in the business of restoring sin-wrecked, broken people. And we thank you for the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through whom you have dealt with the penalty of our sins. He died in our place. And now he is risen on high as our Lord and our Savior. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit that dwells in us to change us, to transform us, to put to death our old self, and to put on Christ. And Father, we ask that this morning your Spirit will do its work, to do his work through the Word in our lives, to bring us from darkness to light, to form us to be more and more like your Son Jesus for your glory. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Well, a very good morning to all of you. Those who have not met me, my name is Kenneth. Uh, this morning we are looking at Ezra 3 and 4. We have started the series on Ezra last week. Uh, Andrew Chia, our dean, started it. Uh, if you have, if you, are, you have missed out that sermon last week, ch- uh, chapter 1 and 2, can I please recommend that to you? It's uh, what I call a, a very cheesecake sermon. It's very dense, it's very small, you add it, but all of a sudden you feel very full. That's how the sermon is. He packed a lot. And seriously speaking, Andrew did a very great job in being very comprehensive with regard to how we are to read Ezra in light of Jesus, in light of the gospel, and how that actually applies to us. Especially the last 20 minutes. You can unpack that a lot. So listen to it again, take notes. It will help you to understand Ezra for the rest of the series. Okay? But for this morning, we'll be looking at Ezra 3 and 4. So keep the Bible open and that's what we'll do now. Kenneth, God is clearly at work here. This is a fairly common statement among Christians. I've said it, many of us have made such a comment, and we will have heard others say it. When and where we make this statement indicates when and where we think God is at work. Let's think about a few scenarios together now. Do you think God is at work in China in the recent years when the house churches have been growing rapidly compared to in the hostile years during the Cultural Revolutions where Bibles were burnt and Christians were imprisoned? Or do you think God is at work here in the Klang Valley where religious freedom has led to numerous church plants over the years compared to in a hostile Kelantan where you hardly get a permit for anything Christian. Do you think God is at work in the British Empire when the gospel was taught as schools were being established everywhere compared to in the Ottoman Empire? Do you think God is at work when your department at your workplace is headed by an understanding manager who lets you off easily for growth groups compared to if you have a nasty manager who constantly demands overtime, even on Sundays. When and where do you think God is at work? To sanctify you in your life, when do you think God is at work in the life of his church, to build up his church, to advance his kingdom? Well, today we see in the book of Ezra two snapshots in the life 
of the Israelites after the exile in Babylon ended. And they have now returned to Jerusalem. The first snapshot is in chapter 3, where everything seems to be going very well. And the second snapshot is in chapter 4, where everything seems to be going so unwell. So where and where do you think God is at work? First of all, the big thing to remember about Ezra is this. Ezra is about restoration. Restoration of Israel. Now, let me give you a cheat passage, a cheat code in the Bible that will help you to quickly understand the context of Ezra. Turn with me in your Bible to Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33, we'll be reading from verse 5. Keep flipping on if you are in Ezra, and you will reach Jeremiah. If you have reached Ezekiel, you are too far. If you have reached Isaiah, keep going. Jeremiah 33, and I'll read from verse 5. This passage will help us to understand what's happening to Israel during the time of Ezra. Verse 5 I read, And I, that's referring to God, have hidden my face from this city, Jerusalem, because of their evil. Behold, I will bring, it, I'll bring to it health and healing, and I'll heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. Nope. Okay, verse 5 onwards, let me take a look. Okay, verse 6, verse 6, thank you. Okay, wrong verse. Let me start from verse 5 again, okay? They are coming in to fight against the Chaldeans and to fill them with the dead bodies of men whom I shall strike down in my anger and my wrath. And 5b, sorry, 5b. For I've, ridden my, I've hidden my face from this city because of their evil. Behold, I will bring to it health and healing. And I'll heal them and reveal to them abundance of prosperity and security. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all their guilt of their sin against me. And I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and their rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. Thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say, it is a waste without man or beast, in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man or inhabitant or beast. They shall be heard again. A voice, the voice of mirth, and the voice of gladness, the voice of bridegroom, and the voice of bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thanks offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first, says the Lord. Okay? See? The book of Ezra talks about a time when Israel was no longer the superpower that it once was. The political world scene has changed quite drastically. Northern kingdom of Israel has been wiped off by the Assyrians. Southern kingdom has been 
captured by the Babylonians and now taken into exile. In 587 BC, Jerusalem, along with the temple, was destroyed by the final Babylonian siege. Cities and streets were laid, were laid desolate, as we read, and this happened because Israel sinned against God, and God is disciplining them. Some years later, in 539 BC, Babylon in turn fell, into the, fell to the Medo-Persian Empire. In, the power, in power was Cyrus the Great. He issued an edict which allowed the captured Israelites to return home and to set up the Jewish state within the Persian Empire. He ordered the rebuilding of Jerusalem Temple and even allowed the stolen goods to be taken home by them. And all this happened because God was beginning to restore Israel. He punished them, he disciplined them, and now he's restoring them. Now, the book of Ezra records for us the beginning of this path of restoration that God has promised Israel. Now, let me ask you, what do you think this path will look like? Well, today, we will see two snapshots of this path. Okay? The first snapshot in chapter 3. Everything seems well. In fact, very well. Take a look at the first five verses. All Israel came together as one and successfully rebuilt the temple. They even re-established a program of regular ongoing worship, and they have done so just as it is written in the book of Moses. So verse 2, it says, they, rebuilt, they built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses. Verse 4, they kept the feast of Booth, as it is written. And this was a feast to remind them of their wilderness experience post-Egypt. And they offered daily offerings according to the numbers, according to the rules. Verse 5, they restored regular burnt offerings, offerings at new moon and all the appointed feasts of the Lord. So in a nutshell, the restoration of corporate worship seems to be going pretty smooth, don't you think? No hindrance at all. And then in verse 6 to 9, we see a good progress, even with the rebuilding of the temple. Verse 7, they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the tyrants. They bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea and to Joppa. And all this that they have done, according to the grant that they had, give, they had been given by Cyrus the king of Persia. Everything seems to be going well. And then in verse 10, at the climax, the foundation of the temple of the Lord, and this temple is a temple that Solomon built for the Lord which God's spirit filled, and you can read about it in 1 Kings 8, that temple which was built but was destroyed by the Babylonian, that temple, the foundation is now laid and is ready to be built again. All seems well. So far, the recovery and the restoration seems to be on express lane. The new king is on their side even. In fact, things were going so well that their celebration, air called the celebration of the first temple when it was built. Take a look at verse 10. There were trumpeteers and singers and cymbals, all singing and praising and shouting and thanking God. You can take a look at 2 Chronicles 5. The words are exactly the same, just like when the first temple was built and they celebrated. They must have thought to themselves, hey guys, God is clearly at work here, isn't it? Things are going so well. 
at work in restoring them, healing them, and fulfilling his promises. Not surprising, and it's not surprising because this is what you will expect from the path of restoration, isn't it? But take a look at the next chapter. Things change quite drastically in Ezra 4, if you have noticed, even in the Bible reading. In this snapshot, everything doesn't seem to be going well at all. Straight away in the first verse, we were introduced to the enemies of Israel. They didn't, they didn't seem hostile at first. Verse 2, they even offered to build with the Israelites, claiming that they too worship Israel's God. But their reference to a very difficult to pronounce king, Eshahadon, the king of Assyria, you can read about him in 2 Kings 17.34. 2 Kings 17.34. And that helps us to see that they were basically putting forth a multi-faith proposition. They fear Israel's Yahweh, yes, but they also serve their own gods. And now they are trying to get the Israelites to do the same. And so when Israel objected in verse 3, a long campaign of harassment began. Hostile harassment. Verse 4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. Verse 5. They even bribed the counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. Not once, but all through the days of the king of Persia, again and again. And then verse 6. In the reign of Ahasuerus, thank God I'm not a Bible reader today, isn't it? Good for you. In the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And in a complaint letter written to King Artaxerxes, they claimed to speak for the whole province who feared the safety of the realm. Verse 16, they said, We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its war is finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. And as a result of their complaints, verse 24, a decree was made to stop the rebuilding of the temple. Verse 24, the work of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of king of Persia. We can see that the opposition to God, to his restoration, to Israel is extremely strong extremely hostile. It came with persistent and of variety, sneers and intimidation and threats. Their tactics to discredit worked and now even the authority is against Israel. That's how good they were. Let me ask you now, do you think their restoration is going well? Everything seems to be well back then and now things have changed. We have got today two snapshots that we have just seen of Israel's path to restoration, which God has promised. The first snapshot in chapter 3, everything seems to be going so well. Restoration is underway. Temple foundation is laid. God is clearly at work. Second snapshot, right in the next chapter, everything seems to be completely unwell. Immense hostility against God's restoration work. Rebuilding came to a standstill completely. Now, if you were one of the returned Israelites in each of the snapshots of your life as a nation, what would you be thinking? 
when and where do you think God is at work? And notice that there is nothing in these two chapters that affirms explicitly that God is at work. God is barely mentioned in these two chapters. Chapter 3 focuses on God's people at work. They built, they set the altar, they burned offerings, they gave money, they appointed Levites, they sang, they praised. It's all God's people at work. Chapter 4 focuses on God's enemies at work. They discouraged, they made them afraid, they bribed, they wrote accusation. By force, they stopped and they seized the temple. Day, day, day and day. It's all them. So when is God? And where is God at work? Well, first we need to understand that Ezra 1 to 6 works together as one unit. You realize that when we hit chapter 7, when Ezra finally stepped on the stage. But 1 to 6 is one unit. And you need to understand that they are what I think, you have to read it yourself, what I think they are bookends in chapter 1 and chapter 6 that is supposed to frame how we are to understand everything that is in between. Let me show you the bookends. Take a look at chapter 1, verse 1. Reading from verse 1. Ezra 1 verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdoms and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is at work? The Lord is at work. The Lord is at work behind the king of Cyrus, the king. Take a look now at the last chapter of this section, chapter 6, verse 7. Chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 22. Sorry, 22. And they kept the feast of the unleavened bread seven days with joy. For the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Did you see something similar between these two chapters? Right at the book ends. Who is at work? It's clearly God, isn't it? Very clear. At the beginning and at the end, we are reminded that all these events in between were in fact governed by the sovereign hand of God, the God of heaven. God is at work through, throughout to rebuild his own house, to renew his presence among his people, that he is among his people again. He makes sure that he is the one who makes sure that his temple gets built and that his people rejoices. God has always been in charge and at work throughout history. Despite hostile opposition to fulfill his promises, to accomplish his purposes, no earthly powers, no earthly authorities has stopped him or can stop him. Not Pharaoh, 
not Artaxerxes, and not Pilate. Jesus, in the passage that we just read to us in uh, John 19, very straightforwardly and as a matter of factly, said to Pilate during his trial before the crucifixion, he said in John 19, first Pilate said this, Pilate said to Jesus, you will not speak to me, do you not know that I have the authority to release you, the authority to crucify you? And what did Jesus say? Jesus answered him, you have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Jesus has a very clear sense of who is in charge in this world. It is God who is in charge all the time. So what is Ezra about? Ezra is about restoration. It is about God's work in restoring those who have sinned against him. Restoring those who have been left broken by their own sin and the sin of others. And we have seen today in Ezra 3, God, we have a God who works tirelessly and persistently, powerfully and sovereignly over all powers and all authorities. He works at all times and he works through all things. He do that to restore sinful, broken people in the midst of a hostile opposition, restoring them to himself. And let me ask you, wouldn't that be good news to you and to me? It is, isn't it? Because we are all sin-wrecked, broken people in need of God's restoration. Regardless of how it seems to our eyes, in good times, in bad times, whether a liberal, Amno is in power, or a conservative past comes into power, God is still at work. He is still sovereign over history, sovereign over the authorities. And that is where we can have comfort and strength, knowing that he is in control. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have been actively, persistently, lovingly at work in restoring sin-wrecked, broken people to yourself. We have seen you at work in the history of Israel. We have seen your love towards them. And above all, Father, we have seen the extent of your persistent love on the cross that you sent your one and only Son to restore us to yourself, to pay for the penalty of our sins, to redeem us, and to restore us. And Father, you have done that in spite, despite of the opposition of your enemies who are against you, of godless humanity, including ourselves, who once walked in a godless way, who refused your rule over us. Father, we pray that as people who have been restored, as people who, who have been healed by you and continue to be healed by you, that we will proclaim this gospel to our world, to our society, who is sin-wrecked and broken, that many more will be restored through the gospel. And Father, as your people in your church, we find ourselves living in this sin-wrecked, broken world as well, and we are still in a state of being broken and in need of healing. We pray that you remind us 
again and again that you are sovereign. We pray for many who have turned away from you, who feel that they are deserted and they are in exile and that in their sin they have rebelled against you. Help us, Father, as brothers and sisters, to restore them by reminding them that they have a great God. No brokenness is beyond you, Father. You can restore. So help us to be loving to one another, to be loving to them, and to share again the gospel where the compassionate, restoring God is at work to them. And we give thanks to you for this good news in Jesus' name. Amen.